This podcast is powered by The Plug. Hey there, podcast listening people. Connor Doobie here. Very much appreciate you tuning in to the show. We are Mile High Mentors, and we're here to bring you information, strategies, resources, and stories from the local mentors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and subject matter experts. Wherever you're listening to this, make sure you subscribe for future episodes. We are on all of your favorite podcast platforms, all of your favorite podcast apps, and please leave a five-star review so others can find the show too. As always, we have an incredible show for you here today. We're going to roll right in, but make sure you go and visit all of the links in our descriptions. Make sure you visit the links on our social media sites, wherever you find us at Mile High Mentors to learn how to get connected up with mentors, resources, the services that we provide for the community, the nonprofits we're involved with, and to learn more about how you can support the podcast and support Mile High Mentors. We are by the community for the community, with the community. You can also email us, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Again, milehighmentors at gmail.com. If you have guests you recommend, you might be interested in being interviewed on the show, or you want to collaborate, sponsor, partner up in one way or another. Those are things we are always open to, milehighmentors at gmail.com. Without further ado, my friends, we are going to go ahead and dive right in. On that note, ladies and gents, Mike, what's going on, man? Appreciate you joining. Hey, it's good to be here. Uh, when do I not like to be online and spouting off? Yeah, talking, you you got a great skill for it and uh, your your skill sets, being in business as many years as you have. And uh, I learned a lot from you just from our conversation the other day. So I'm I'm grateful to have you here. I'm excited to share with everybody. I think um, is a good way to get started. Give us a bit of background. Where, Where are you from? What was your, you know, what was your childhood like and what led you to becoming the entrepreneur that you are today? Yes, childhood, such a traumatic thing. And actually it wasn't. Um, grew up most of my childhood in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, Centerville, Ohio. Went to two years of high school there and then uh, got shipped off with the rest of my family to Miami, Florida. Um, it's a little bit of a different experience. And uh, Florida is... I ended up going to University of Florida, and after that, went to Vanderbilt for law school and was a lawyer for almost 12 years. I did bankruptcy litigation, corporate reorg stuff, and moved around a bit. Uh, practiced in Dallas, then Chicago, then Columbus, before I realized that um, I was moving because I didn't like practicing law. So in my mind, I was like, ah, I don't like this firm. I think I'll try something new. And I, it occurred to me, you know, it should have occurred to me in law school. Okay. Because when I was in law school, I had, I was running the, uh, the law school cafe. 
I started the law school's first yearbook. I had a t-shirt business and I was writing a uh, humor newsletter for, for the school. And like right there, you know, it just didn't hit me. But uh, you know, when your mom says, are you gonna be a doctor or a lawyer? You don't have any choice. So I kept going. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you or your company are looking to jump into the podcast world, now is the time. The Plug Agency is here to connect you to the full power of podcasting. You just record and leave the rest to us. The people are listening and want to hear from you. Theplug-agency.com. That's theplug-agency.com. Click the link in the episode description for an exclusive offer. So your parents influenced you into the law, into the law uh, practice. Well, not did directly. Passion, did you have a pretty big passion for it? No. Now, let me first, let me first uh, say that my mother does not talk like that. And she is a therapist, a very cunning woman. And she said, um, it was, I remember it was senior year and, and I'm, a, I'm like a semester away from graduating. And I knew I didn't want to be one of those rack jobber guys, you know, to go and replenish Frito-Lays at the end cap in the Safeway. And that's what all my buddies were doing. And I'm talking to my mom and she says, well, why don't you do what you're good at? And I had been, I had been competing in speech four years in high school, four years in college and, you know, nationally ranked and all that. And so she said, why don't you put that to good work? So it was more like a practical thing. It's like, when you meet somebody and they look good on paper and you're like, yeah, I think I'll get married to that person. Then you figure out like 12 years in, maybe not. Uh, so, so, well, so that's, I like law, law is interesting. And I, I feel like it applies so well if you're going to be an entrepreneur and be in business and like any side of business. I, I wish I had the, had the attention span to go to like do law school or something like that. But um, it's amazing how much it applies in so many different areas and gives you such a leg up. I mean, it's no wonder you've been as successful as you are. And I, a lot of entrepreneurs who I've talked to um, actually have some, who have been really successful, have some foundation law, uh, you know, background. And for as much as I make fun, um, I, I would do it all over again the same way. Hmm. Uh, the years in the law were super instructive and it's not law school that law school teaches you how to think and how to research and how to write. And then the practice of law teaches you the dynamic of dealing with people who are really pains in the ass on the other side of the table. And at least in bankruptcy and reorganization, the goal is to take people at loggerheads and come out with a resolution, a reorganization plan, make something out of nothing. And so quite remarkably so, it's, it's amazingly applicable to business, not only from what you learn, you know, you learn, you know, factoring and credit this and retail that, and you, you learn a whole bunch of stuff, but it's that art of dealing with people so that you can get deals done. And when you're an entrepreneur, uh, especially when you're starting at the bottom, uh, where you don't have funding and you're bootstrapping everything, you've got to go in and persuade people. And not only through the, your, your oral presentation, but through the written word, you have to do it effectively. And then you have to 
not be so enamored with whom you're dealing um, that that you give away the farm that you can effectively negotiate and you learn so like all to these attach things. to an outcome you mean yeah more so, yeah or 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 you you're you'll you'll just deal a bad deal in order to say that I have a relationship with this bank or this partner and and there's a balance and I do think that you know for me anyway 12 years in the practice with large clients it teaches me that they're just humans on the other side of the table uh, they're not necessarily better than me they might get paid five times as much but they're just people trying to make decisions and not get their asses in trouble uh, by making bad decisions and it, I always liken it to this when you're a kid if you ever played sports as a kid whenever the other team came out on the field there was always a shrinking like oh damn they look really intimidating and it didn't matter how good or bad they were now sure after the first five minutes of the game you might be able to start to see but that intimidation you can't let that get you uh, in your negotiations and in your dealings with the other side especially as an entrepreneur you're usually David and you're trying to deal with Goliath and and so Th do, that do you still just to, just to jump in there do you still yeah. feel that way at some point even at this level this stage in your career do you still get that feeling sometimes i have a few times um it doesn't it all it do does is amp me so in 2007 i had a startup called kango um k-a-a-n-g-o and it was a syndicated newspaper classified ad platform and we sold it to Media News Group, who was based here, and Hearst, um, obviously in New York. And when I pitched it, it was fine. I, you know, that was, but when we were closing the deal and I went to New York and they took us to the top of Hearst Tower and they had waiters come in and serve dinner, then I was like, oh, okay, wow. You know, this is the real deal. And and you do feel like, all right, I, I, you know, we need to step up right now. But was never, uh, I didn't feel intimidated by them. I, I felt like I'm going to show them what I've got. If they like it, here we are. Let's do it. And, you know, we, we just, you know, I just went on on my way and treated them as I would with other partners. And I had sold a company to Microsoft um, and Ford before that, and that helped. That was, that was nerve wracking. So that was back when Steve Ballmer was running Microsoft and is not the guy that reported to him was doing the deal with me. And so you go into Redmond and you sit in a room and with all these, uh, with their lawyers and their, and their, you know, they're corporate execs and you do feel it. You do feel it because they've got the leverage and they're so big that you just don't want to screw up. So yeah. again, you, you know, it, and so, yeah, that just to get back to your question, it gets you, you're like, okay, okay. I got the big one here. Cause you yeah. want to bring that home. Well, some you people take that, that in, in it's a fear thing. And then the fear keeps them from something like, Mile High Mentors, for example, someone might be intimidated to get into contact with someone like you or someone else who they see as kind of that Goliath and it scares them. I remember playing football in high school, actually. It's funny you brought that up. 
And, and it was exactly that. You walk out to the team and you see the other team and it doesn't matter what the record is, anything. It's that, oh shit moment. Um, and it's like that so much in business, especially when you're just getting started as a professional, young professional, as an entrepreneur. So it's always interesting to hear, uh, you know, seasoned veteran entrepreneur's perspective on that. And you know what? I've always made the cold call. So we got Microsoft because I made a cold call. Really? Um, yeah, we got hers because I just went in um, off a white paper that I had done. And I said, let me come down and show you what we have. And I've always gone for the bigger clients first because why not? Uh, if you have a good story to tell, tell the story. The worst that can happen is nah, no thanks. Wells Fargo was another example where I, I had an auto product very early on in the days of the internet back in the late 90s. And, you know, I, we went to Wells Fargo and said, look, we've got something different here. Do you want to hear us? GE Capital, same thing. And you'll get your share of no's, but in the process, you will learn what questions they're asking, what they care about, how they view the market. So I don't, you know, goes back to dating. Are you going to walk up and, and put the line out there or not? And, you know, you, what is Wayne Gretzky? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So Yeah, it's, it's true. It's something I think of constantly is that regret is more painful than taking that shot and, um, you know, being let down. I think like I would encourage anybody to take that shot that seems so intimidating and then you get to the other side of it. And it's really, it's not like I used to get so nervous before I do a podcast or talk to someone or do anything like that. So um, it's just, and it becomes a habit at some point too, right? Like making that cold call would suck, but then it's just eventually it's like brushing your teeth. But if you've waited till your product or service is to a point where you're proud of it, then you should have no trouble. Uh, in fact, you should want to show the world what you have. I think a lot of people come out prematurely. Their product lacks polish. Um, maybe it doesn't execute as well. And, and so that would make me nervous, right? If I were going into the game, not prepared. Um, so, the, you, you know, you have to figure out why you're, hesitant to go to bat and you get one chance of course you know that and you get about five minutes and if you could and now it's much harder than it was just 10 years ago people executives get bombarded why is your linkedin in message special why are they going to look at it and if they look at it in a paragraph or two can you please not come off salesy. Can you assert a little bit of confidence and, you know, and not do any of the stupid tricks that I get every day from people. And it's just, yeah. Phone, email, no matter the channel. Anything. I think, I think people get too uh, close to their own stuff and then it becomes about them. Like I get DMS constantly from people like, Hey Connor, can you do this for me? And it's all an ask and ask and ask. And there's no, you know, hey, I saw you're doing this. I might be able to help you with this. And oh, by the way, do you think you could do this for me in exchange? And I, it's interesting. I, I am a uh, admission screener for Vanderbilt Law School still. And when the kids come to me and 
I, I do like a little fake interview with them. I say, yeah, all right, look, um, you know, why, why do you want to come to Vanderbilt? And, and they'll say things like, I'm so passionate about this and I'm this and I'm that. And then I say, I reframe it for them. I said, imagine that Vanderbilt is in the market to buy product and you're the product. You need to tell Vanderbilt why you are enhancing Vanderbilt's roster of kids, how when you get out, you will you'll bring money or business or attention back to Vanderbilt in a positive way. And that while you're there, you will contribute to the environment so that other students say that Vanderbilt was a great experience. So it's the same thing with, with these partnerships. If, it's go if you go in and it's I, I, we, we, and you know, all of what we can do, usually to me, I mean, that's a sales pitch and people are, I think, programmed to say, not now, not now, but find why you're important to them and then articulate that in the first instance so that they see it as a benefit to them. And it's okay that it benefits you too. And I will always use language like, I think there's something mutually beneficial here. I think this is interesting. I think it's worth a chat and I don't make it a big deal. And hey, you want to discuss this? Love to have the discussion with you. This is what I was thinking and I'm not vague. I'll put it out there. What I was thinking was you have this service, we have this service and whether strategic or arm's length, uh, I think the services could multiply our revenue opportunities. If this is interesting to you, let's talk. now. Easy for me to say, I'm old AF, you know, I've been around and, uh, and, and so, and I'm also in a position with the company where we've got enough clients to, you know, oh, this guy's real and, you know, they can look at my background. But when you're first starting out and you don't have that, you have to earn, you know, those, those notches as you go up the chain, but damn well act like you've already got them mm. when you're just starting out. What, and well, confidence goes a long way. What, what I think is interesting is learning from someone like you is you could probably lose everything you have and go back and rebuild it. Like, would you agree with that? Go back and rebuild or start a business, another company from scratch and be able to do it 10, 20, 30 times quicker than the first time you did it because you have that experience, because you have that knowledge. Oh, quite so. And I have done that. I mean, I, yeah. I, there's like seven companies, which is a byproduct of mild ADD, non-prescription medicine. Um, Phil, Phil Lockwood says, here. what's up, by the way. Granitz is the master, total badass. I have to agree with you. It's a pretty cool cat <laughs> so far. I say shit like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Endorsement. No, so... Um, well, look at it. What were we really talking about? Well, so so let, let's right. shift momentum a little bit here. Yeah. Talking a little bit about some wins. What are some of the um, what are some of the failures that you've had in building what you have today? Well, you know the classic answer is we'll define failure. Yeah. Um, well, falling flat on your face or on your butt uh, is failure, and it's okay, but it happens and. One of the ones, um, failures that I've had. Can, can, I ref from, can I rephrase that a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. In hindsight, if, if you were to go back 
20, 30 years to a younger you, what would you maybe do differently in your life? Nothing. I, oh, um, may, I might not have hung around in the law as long as I did. I didn't have self-awareness at the time. And right nowadays, I think young people will switch tracks much faster than when I was around. I was risk averse when I started. So if, you, if I had to change anything, I might, I might accelerate that. But I have to say, and I'm, I, I'm not trying to sound like a shithead, I, I don't regret any choice that I made. Um, when I was ready to leave the law, I did. I made a transition into a company, uh, which is an interesting story in and of itself. And to, because to come out of the law and go into technology was like, a, a, what, what are you doing? Do you want to be in-house counsel? Uh, you know, and so it was really difficult to go out, take a pay cut and really grind it. And that path, I would do the same. I've had some businesses that I've started. One in particular, I it was stopthejunkmail.com. And it was a business where you could go online and pick out the catalogs and crap that you get in the mail and stop it and then elect the ones you wanted to keep. And it was designed to save trees. And we partnered with the American Forest Association. I think that's what they were called. Um, and it was starting to go. And I saw that I didn't, I didn't do my research in the beginning to understand how I could get the commitments or the software, frankly, to automate, like through an API, the subscription stopping and starting. And I don't think the companies were ready to do that. The company, the catalogers, you know, of all the, the catalogs you get, I know, you know, you could check off and still get your Victoria's Secret and it would be fine. Thank um, God I still get my Victoria's Secret. That's right. I mean, <laughs> it's still good. So, so that was, I didn't do homework on that one. I just started it because I was mad. I'm like, ah, ah. and then I just go off on a tear. And, and so, you know, you can, you can run into that. You will. And that's one example of uh, how you get in trouble where you're so in love with your idea that you didn't get the business model right. Another one I did was a digital magazine in 2012. Again, my passion, my hobby, radio control flying. I started a magazine called RC Pilot, purely on tablet. Nobody was doing it. All right. The execution was phenomenal. It's not just me saying this. The president of Hearst magazine said, this is one of the best magazines I've ever seen. And it was truly interactive in 2012. What did Kranitz ignore? That most of the guys in the hobby were over 60. And they wanted a paper magazine to take to the bathroom and roll up and give to their friends. Because I was so I was so into the future that I was going to make the coolest magazine ever. And I didn't take into account that even the subscribers would forget to buy next month's issue because they weren't paying attention. Mm. And then the app store was going to take a third. And there were a lot of things. I was seven months into a $30,000 a month production schedule. Okay. That I was, I, we were going all over the country with film crews and doing really in-depth stuff. 
You know, like, it was like a television show. It was like a news magazine on TV. And then my father said to me, who's, who's been an entrepreneur, who's been entrepreneur, all self-employed his, his entire life. He said, when are you going to cry uncle? And that's all he had to say. He didn't have to tell me what was wrong. He said, when are you going to cry uncle? And I remember going, wow, I'm a quarter mil into this thing and it ain't working. It looks nice. People love it, you know, but it doesn't work. And the market's too small, radio control flying. So, so those are some failures and all of those could have been obviated had I put aside my passion for what I was doing and really looked at the business and framed it out and done a plan and, and even some light forecasting. I don't think you need to go all MBA and do a you know 20 tab spreadsheet to forecast it until you're further down the line. Um, but those were my errors. And also let's, let's, let's frame this for a second for, for the audience. I've, I've toiled in the niches for all of my deals. Um, the event management is the first one that, well, automobiles weren't a niche either, but, but I, a lot of my businesses, I've been able to start, do the coding myself, do the marketing, do the legal work, the contracts, the negotiation, everything, and incur very little expense upfront. So that's why I've kind of gone off crazy and done some of this stuff. For other businesses, um, like the, uh, the, the radio control community that I co-founded with uh, a partner back in 2001, and the automotive pieces, that I did some math. I mean, I did, I looked at the numbers, I saw what I could make, um, and, and I had a plan going forward. And those, in those a, mostly in the, the niche, niches, niches. The, the niches, is that a good thing or if you, if to go back and start it again or having a company that's a little more can apply to many different industries? Well, you could do a pivot, which is what, what we did with EventSquid. EventSquid yeah. started out as RC Flight Deck. What is RC Flight Deck? My passion again, it was an event, it's an event management platform for radio control hobby guys. Here I am again, banging my head against that wall. But what happened was RC led to archery and archery led to bodybuilding and bodybuilding to golf, to fitness, you know, and on and on. And now we had a suite of these sites and then the corporate people came calling and then we switched tracks and went to corporate and that's what this business serves. And we have some very large clients, uh, very prominent clients. And, and that started as a niche hobby trial balloon companion to that magazine I was telling you about. This was the event platform that went into the magazine. And when the magazine dropped, I went full hog on the, on the uh, event management side and built it for years by myself until we got the uptake. So that's an example of starting in a niche and then, you know, funneling, reverse funneling out to a larger market. In automobiles back in the late 90s, I started out in leasing, which at the time was an arcane. Nobody understood leases. It was black magic. Auto leases were huge, but there weren't disclosure laws. The current 
contract you get now was passed. I think uh, Reg M uh, was passed in the late 90s. That wasn't even out yet. I couldn't find a book on auto Those leasing. Close leases, like apartment leases. Auto leases. Auto leases. Oh, automobile leases. Automobile leases. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Right? So to me, that's a niche within a giant industry. Yeah. Okay. And it was almost a third of the financial transactions in auto buying. And well, it became that. And so that I pivoted auto leasing to or grew it into auto buying. And that's the, the business that Microsoft acquired. And that's an example of maybe starting small. And I started with a book and a piece of software that helped you write auto leases. Mm -hmm. And that story, even as I look back on it, I was up, I was practicing law. I was up until 3 a.m. writing. And my wife, Abby said, what are you doing? I said, I'm writing a book on leasing. Why? I don't know why. Um, so I'm writing the book. I go out, I harvest every lease contract from every man vehicle manufacturer and I digest them all. So this is the lawyer part of me going through each contract and I make this grid. And then in HTML, I make a tool where you could look up your, you know, Ford Motor Credit, Honda Credit, and you could see in English what they were doing in the lease. So I started building these tools and then I built software as a companion to the book to help people figure out their auto leases and still a lawyer. Okay. So now I have this little product and I had a, a local company that was making CDs or discs for AOL. Hmm. I don't know if you remember, you probably don't remember this back in the day, you'd get bombed in the mail with these uh, AOL join AOL and you put a CD in your computer and, you know, yeah, that. And, and with the book and software, I literally had a notebook of every major magazine, the editors, I wrote letters, I made phone calls, and Motor Trend. One magazine, one editor picked it up. How many, how many do you think you sent out? I sent out 150 hmm. letters. And this was back when you did letters. Yeah. I mean, late 90s, email was not the, the mode of communication. I was on the phone, had my little notebook, I'd draw a line through, call back, voicemail, whatever. And not, Jeff Barton, not to Not to deter too much, but I, it's, it's, it's interesting where we're at in the modern world now is I wonder going back if we're almost more impactful because that was the medium that we had and people were going to jump and read it and consume it at least and take thought into it versus now the bombardment of communications, mail, email, it's, text too message. It's too much. It's almost like I wonder if it's actually harder to break through now than it actually would be starting a business 20 years well, ago. I, what's interesting is I think about it and I think about all the magazines that didn't respond. Hmm. And because they were so inaccessible, that was a different barrier. And now the barrier is hyper accessibility and flooding, like you said. And so I don't know, actually. And the other thing that's, that's become the norm is you can get a tip from anyone, right? So if you're a magazine or a digital magazine, you might listen to that random, oh, I got an email from somebody who says they, because 
maybe that's valuable. So I don't know the answer to that one. I can just tell you that it was a slog. <laughs> it was. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm talking about three and a half inch floppy disks, you know, packaging them in little envelopes and putting an Avery label on and mailing them out for 35 bucks a piece for software. Yeah. And, you know, and on it goes. Uh, so, so what hap will happen with that, with that opportunity? So, so Motor Trend picks it up and I start to sell these, the software. And I have this company making a, the box. We used to have software in a box. Let's put electrons in a cardboard box. And a woman from Wisconsin wrote me and she said, the gist of what she said was, hey, my husband passed away about a year ago, but we were in a three-year lease or a two-year lease and it's coming due. And I was absolutely frightened because he used to handle this. And then I saw the article in Motor Trend and I bought your software and it helped me make a great lease deal. And I had the confidence to go in and cut the deal I wanted. And when I got, and she said, thank you for giving me back my confidence, whatever she said. And I remember telling Abby, I said, oh, I'm quitting the law. I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. Because it was so inspiring that something that I had created had affected somebody else's life in that way without getting, you know, too sappy about it. That's really the payoff, right? Cash is nice, but that's a good payoff. So that's how I, that's when I made the decision to leave, but then I had to find a place to go. So the place that was doing the boxes for the software and the disks, I went to them and I said, hear about this new internet thing? <laughs> and they're like, no. I said, oh, you're not on the internet? You don't have a digital business division? No, because no. websites are fad. Or because it was, right? you know, Genie and Prodigy and AOL was just coming online, this horrible stuff, CompuServe. And I was in the heart of it. I was in Columbus, Ohio, where CompuServe was based. Anyhow, they, they gave me a two-year contract to start a digital business. That business, in eight months, I took over, bought from them. Company out in Colorado bought that business and then I evolved that into driveoff.com and that's what Microsoft and Ford bought. So mm -hmm. from auto leasing, you know, to MSN autos and I, I went on as vice president of MSN autos and then the dot-com bust happened in 2001 and it all came crashing down. And, and uh, what was that experience like? So that experience was coupled Within 30 days, I found out that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer and that I had to terminate 77 people. Um, it, it wasn't as funny at the time, uh, but like I literally had to stand in a room with all my employees after I had, you know, and just say both of these things. And I'm like, guys, I am, I just, I felt bad. I felt horrible telling them and they felt bad for me and I didn't want it. But that was quite an experience. And, you know, they lost, MSN lost $300 million the, the year before. So we were, you know, we were just, you know, we don't, they didn't want to be in that business anymore. And they cut a bunch of other uh, divisions off too. So that's when I went back home and had to rebuild the next 
suite of businesses that I was going to do. And that was Stop the Junk Mail and RC Universe, which was the radio control site that grew into the world's largest online community at the time. And that gave birth to Kango, which was the one that Hearst and Media News Group bought, and they bought RCU with it. So what, what was it? I think for a lot of us millennials hearing about the dot-com burst, and we were you know, pretty young then, um, even some of the older millennials may not have actually understood what was happening. What actually, and someone like you, I feel I like could articulate it very well. What, what, what occurred, like, what was the, the dot-com burst? Like, why did so many people lose their shirt? Like, I don't think people realized how bad it was. Like, people were, like, committing suicide off of buildings, and it was a very similar to the 08 and 09 crash as well, too, right? I have two words. Sock puppet. Huh. And sock puppet means there was a company whose advertisements were a sock puppet. It, it was, and it, it's emblematic of the euphoria and the overvaluation of companies. What would happen is if you had a good .com name, plants.com, then you could get investors to throw money in. And they were throwing money in crappy business models. We'll do this online. And I was, I was jaded by it. Like I saw the crap that was coming on. And it's, it, it would take up an entire show, but the business model behind driveoff.com was written up in the Wall Street Journal. It was the very first automotive sales model that could be, that allowed a non-auto dealer to get paid on the sale of a car in 19 states that had laws protecting auto dealers from brokers. It was, and I designed it so that it could work that way. And we put a ton of thought into it. But there were companies out there at the same time, and you know where auto buying online is now. We were so far ahead of the curve in 99, it's ridiculous, that there were companies that would, I mean, I can't even remember them all. They were, they, there were some really dumb ones, and they just weren't executing. So imagine you're the CEO, you're on the hook, maybe personal guarantee, or maybe you've put your life savings into something and God. So that's like a lot happened. of the same is, is still occurring today. Um, not as much, not it. No, because a, the investors are more savvy. And so there now I've seen some stupid money throwing still, it goes on. If you happen to live in the right geography and you go to the right people, you can get money for almost anything. And it's a lot of times it's vaporware. And that was part of the problem back then too. They'd show, you know, wireframes and everything else. People would throw money in. What, and what's then they what's vaporware? Vaporware is software that ain't there. That's yep. vapor. Wow, I, that's an old term. I'm that old. I yeah. figured someone else may not may not know know no, exactly, no, you're right. but you're right. I think I think uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. So with with everything happening now, well, it's in, there's a couple of themes going on here too, and it kind of goes back to your even just your messaging on like your LinkedIn profile, skating to where the puck is going. It's like sometimes if you're not careful and you're not doing the research, and in hindsight, like doing the industry research and it may be innovative for its time, but is there actually a market there? 
is one thing. And then the other side is you can be, um, you know, too early or you can be like right in a good time, but it may be inflated and there could be something on the back end that causes a crash. The other thing is the, the flip side of that is don't be afraid to go into an area that's crowded. Um, if you can do it better, uh, at the end of the day with software, people copy. Everybody's going to copy what you're doing. They're going to look at it and go, oh, yeah, we can do that. But can you execute efficiently? And where success comes to me is in process and execution. How do you do your software releases? How do you address client concerns? Because every business is going to scale. So you're going to have to have more customers. How much do you have to touch each customer along the way? Do you think you have a self-serve platform, but it's not a self-serve platform? Do you need to train them? How close is that? And can you do it effectively? How well can you sell and scale at the same time without turning into a mill where you, you know, you're just trying to get customers and contracts. And, and so the, the process which is often overlooked by the visionary CEO, and I'm one of them until I got the right people around me, that's how you fix that. Get people who know process. Our COO, Joe Conti, is, I mean, the guy is absolutely lights out at what he does. He came up from Kraft and, and uh, Nielsen and data-oriented companies, and he is all about the process. And he whipped my ass into shape early on because I was a cowboy with the code. And I just, oh, let's make this feature. You know, and that works in the beginning, but it doesn't scale. So, um, so execution and process are absolutely critical, even on an idea where you're in a market that's really crowded, that if you look up and look at the competition, you'll go, why did we do this again? Um, because if you look at all the, the ones that I've started, automotive, right, event management, uh, the radio control thing, we'll, we'll dismiss for a minute. But those are two good examples of some really crowded fields where, where there's intense competition. But I will tell you that our little company goes up against the biggest billion-dollar company in the event management space every day, and we win contracts from them mm-hmm. because we execute. Yeah, and, and you don't I think, have to win. You don't have to be the biggest gorilla. You don't right. have to be Mark Zuckerberg. You don't have to. A lot of people start their business thinking that's it, and then they get deterred along the way and then don't even build it into a business. That they're you know actually... what? The aim, is not, the aim is not success to me as that's defined by, by monies. The aim is build a good product hmm. and get it out to market. I, I still, you, some people will call me naive, but for me, um, the exercise of entrepreneurship is to put out a product that I am proud of, that other people talk about and attribute back to us, and they will take care of marketing that product for me. If it's good, they will come and use it. Um, I mean, did, did you see ads for TikTok anywhere? No. People liked it. They just liked it. It was well-executed. Snapchat, well-executed, constantly innovating. And the president doesn't like it, but that's another story. That might be a badge of honor. I'm sure, um, I'm sure, I'm sure you've got a perspective on that, looking at some of your no. Facebook rants that I've seen. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. 
go follow this man. No, um, that's awesome. So how you being experienced entrepreneur, how do you have any recommendations for those of us who are all trying to navigate the world we're in? What do you think's going to come of it in the world of business? Um, where do you think the puck is going in this case? I'm for the first time, I'm, I'm a little frightened uh, by where the puck is going. Um, and that's largely uh, because of the political environment. We don't succeed in an infertile garden. If, if the people around you are disgruntled, fearful, unemployed, they're not spending money, nobody wins. So that needs to handle itself. That needs to work itself out, however that's gonna work out. But we need stability in which to operate. Assuming we have stability, I think that innovation is at a breakneck pace. And kids coming up need to hone a couple of skills that are enduring no matter how things change. Communication orally and in writing. You've got to be able to articulate yourself and call me old fashioned. I was, I hated grammar in grammar school, high school and college. And it wasn't until law school where I learned and afterwards where I learned the payoff on the written word, whether it was a book I published or a white paper. And I'll tell you an anecdote. I wrote a white paper on event management, okay? I wrote it and then forgot about it. A year later, I'm down at the Houston Chronicle trying to, trying to pitch them and I got 25 people in the room, giant circle of people. And one guy says, hey, uh, Mr. Kranitz, hang on a second. And he holds up a printout with a bunch of Sharpie marks on it. He goes, did you write this? I said, yeah, that's my white paper. He goes, I've been circulating in this office for the last month. And I was like, yes. And that's what led to Hearst. Okay, that's money in the bank, proximate, you know, you could draw a straight line. Written word. How good are you at sounding measured, researched, and in command of the subject matter? How good are you orally? If you have to demo your product, how good are you? And I'm not talking about just, you know, how well words roll off your tongue. I'm talking about responding to your audience. Can you read them facially? Where are they going? How do you react? And where do you go with it? Are you in command? Do you have product knowledge so that you can respond to just about anything? Now, look, there is an advantage to, in software anyway, to understanding code and understanding business at the same time. And yeah, the legal part helps too. So when I'm in a discussion with somebody or with a group of six people, and then the head of IT goes, well, uh, what sort of security do you have? And they expect me to pass that question off. And then I rattle off, you know, a couple of things, TLS 1.2 and, you know, SSL and HTTPS cookies and blah, 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 whatever it is. Then he says, oh, that guy knows his stuff. And then they go, they have more confidence in you, okay? So that means if it's not you, the entrepreneur, if your VP is sales, make sure they know their stuff. Mm. So product knowledge, 
endures. So that's written and oral communications. And, and then the other thing is, is a more soft skill of human relations, what I call the old fashioned way. Don't lapse into an email every time. Pick up the phone, talk to somebody. You'll be different if you do that because most people are lazy and they're just gonna and send off the email. Send it off. You can lose a deal on an email, not always, but be sensitive to when that's appropriate. And when you're talking to somebody, don't, you know, and again, this comes from, comes with age and it comes from understanding my product, but I push on people. I ask them why. So if somebody says, well, do you have gamification in your software? We don't. There's a reason why we don't. And before I'm going to tell them that reason, I'm going to say, well, why do you need gamification? And then they'll tell me something like, well, we want our attendees to visit all the booths and we want them to scan a QR code at the booth and that motivates them to go to the booth. I go, oh, well, what do you suppose is going through the vendor's or the attendees mind when they know you have to give them an incentive to go visit the booth? Do they think that you maybe pick vendors they want to see? that you have to have a game. And when they get to the booth, do you think the engagement level is such that it really worked? What's the ROI? Not in terms of dollars, but what's the return? Does it really work or did you just hear that from somebody? So I will, I will challenge, I won't tell them, no, you can't do that, but I'm gonna make them think. And so when you do that, when you're more consultative in your process with the client, then the client views you as an authority. And again, product knowledge contributes to that. And as an authority, you're trusted. And that's how you form a real relationship, not just a transactional relationship with your clients. That's why they stay, okay? And in businesses like ours, which rely on subscriptions, yeah, the product has to work, but when it doesn't and then every product will fail, they, people that will stick with you because they know you've got their back are the ones you want and you're going to engender that by performing in that manner. And that's also where communication comes in too mm-hmm. in all of those scenarios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how, do you, how would you recommend someone refine those skills? Um, just put yourself in the client's shoes. What would, what, how would I want to be treated? That's all it takes. It's not magic. Now, can you, you can take that as your core theme and then from there you can establish processes. Hey, every three months we're gonna do a follow-up where we actually pick up the phone and call the client. How you doing? You liking everything? Have you run into anything? And sure, it's gonna cause you some support time and you might have to explain something and some people just blah, 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 and they start, oh, by the way, I have one more question. That's, if I hear one more question one more time, it's never one more question. So develop a process around the concept of standing in your client's shoes. I dig it. Anything else that you think, what's top of mind for you, man? Anything else that you got the audience here, Coloradoans, students, professionals, entrepreneurs, what do people need to know from you? What do they need to learn from you? I think that, it, it's, it's to me, and I, I, I am biased. Uh, sometimes I'll say I wish I just sold t-shirts so I could turn out the lights at five and go home. Um, software is, is the future. 
It is now. It is also the future. And, and it is amazing that you can take a blank screen and build whatever you want. And if you can't code, find somebody who can. Um, let your imagination go. I have never seen any medium that is so empowering as software is. And I think that um, if, if, even if you, I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's, a, it's an exciting time. And, and it's, it's a time in which, you know, everybody thinks they have the next great app. Um, not always. Everybody thinks that a lot of people think they have the next great internet business. But when you get your idea, take people's opinions, not your relatives, because they'll all think it's a good idea, but solicit critical feedback. And it's okay to abandon your idea and go, you know what, eh, maybe I'll leave that alone. No matter how intensely you believe in it, be willing to let it go if it's not right. But also be well, you know, look at what's, look at the opportunities that are out there for you to contribute. And I think that if you're in a position where you're still getting your education, having these skills, whether it's using an application like Adobe InDesign or, you know, learning a, 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 a WYSIWYG app coding software that allows you to make an app. And even if you can only make a wireframe and articulate your concept and get somebody else to help you through it, which is how I started in software, that's okay. Um, so vet the idea. And I, a lot of people aren't going to share my excitement for software, but at its core, to me, it allows ideas to become reality with very little cost because you can, you can, you can build it. And, and you don't it. even need so need software or tech to take an idea and turn it into a business. I mean, now you need digital stuff, but there, there's so many different ways you can do that. Whether it's an info product or oh. it's a new invention, right? So it's like just taking that, uh, idea and manifesting it into a business. Yeah, okay. And you're right. And I, I, you know, I get that. I, but you're biased because you're, because you're software. I, I am so. biased, but <laughs> yeah. you know, things, things are tricky to bring to market. Yeah. Um, now with 3d printing uh, you could bring a concept to market a lot faster, but you have patents, drawings, you know, engineering and, and all of those things. And somebody might look at that and say, Hey, that's a lot easier than that damn software shit. Um, so, so I didn't mean to be biased, but it does take the same approach. Is this good? Do people really need, you know, a bait tackle box that when you pick it up, it drains the water out? I mean, do we really need that? Um, do we need another thing? Uh, so yeah. It's another thingamabob in the drawer that does something with tomatoes only, but <laughs> And that, and look, by just by virtue of 7 billion people on the planet and all the products we currently have, yeah, that's to answer your earlier question, I think it is more difficult to come to mark, market with something that hasn't been done before mm, um, yeah. so that you have an angle. But you better have an angle or you better be really tenacious or you better have a cut price and, and win on price. But you got to have some advantage or, you know, it's not the old, well, there's, uh, you know, 300 million people. And if we could only get 1% of them, yeah. you know, 
doesn't work that way. Without long. doing the industry research, you know, without right. interviewing people. Hey, do you need this? Do you want this? Is this right. actually going to help you? Yeah. Like podcasts. Like podcasts. Ready to get your podcast launched here, yeah. buddy? How many, and, and I'm actually going to dive in and do that. And somehow, only because it's fun, but you got to know that with so much out there, I actually wonder if somebody else can digest more content. Um, but you have convinced me because you are talented in your own right that people will buy what I'm selling on the Michael Kranitz event show brought to you by. <laughs> you answered your own question. Don't need to, uh, you can be in an industry that appears flooded from the outside, right. but there's always that, 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 micro niche in there that's going to consume every little bit and drop that you put out. And uh, you got some great stuff, man. And I can't thank you enough for, for doing this also. I'm really excited. I have to have you back again in a year and see how things have changed. And, hey. and, uh, and after we've gotten your podcast launched and rocking and rolling in the meantime, how can people find you, follow you, get into contact with you? Uh, 1-800-IRS-GOV. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. <laughs> um, don't find me. Don't cut. No, that's not, that's not true. I'm very open. I so I, I will I'm on LinkedIn. You. I'm on LinkedIn and I will thrash anybody who sends a stupidly worded, unintelligent message to me. And I will smile while I'm thrashing them. Isn't that nice? Um, I'm on Facebook, but you know, you don't want to come in my circle on Facebook. You'll, you'll be mentally disturbed by, you know, after a couple of posts. So it's really LinkedIn. Um, and if you're, if you're looking for event software, you could just go to eventsquid.com and, and read all about it. And eventually uh, you'll get me probably on a, on a screen talking to you about how you run your business and, and your events and such. So those are the best ways to get a hold of me. I will not be publishing my my mobile number uh, on this podcast. Fair enough. Fair enough. That'll be next time. And, and those of you who have questions, make sure you uh, message and message us. We'll make sure to get them over to Michael. You know and what, for Michael all of you, at eventsquid.com. How about Michael that? at eventsquid.com. If you're in events, um, check out the software. It's phenomenal. You've been crushing it and, uh, and, and helping a lot of people over the years. And and uh, mentoring too. So can't thank you enough for mentoring us all. And make sure those of you listening, number one, subscribe as always. So you get notified for new episodes. Leave a five-star review as preferred and give us a shout on social media too. We'll give you, see you guys next time.